Thank you very much for those kind words of introduction. And thank you, Steve, for setting us all up. It's been really a joy to know you over the better part of two decades. I still remember, was it the first lunch we had together in Naps in Chicago, mid-90s? Um, and this is a really wonderful opportunity to be with everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening for this. And thank you also, Steve, for the presentation you just gave. It really is amazing how similar our trajectories have been and how similar our viewpoints on how it all holds together are. Uh, so you just heard from um, the introductory comments, I did my doctoral work at Oxford um, some 20, 25 years ago and I'm really grateful to my supervisor, Callistus Ware, for recommending that I work on Irenaeus of Lyon. He really is one of the earliest figures, major theologians of the Christian church. He's the first one really in whom we see um, all the writings of what we now have as a New Testament being used as scripture. Yeah? So it's really at the, at the cusp of that, uh, the second half of the second century. And he's also got a hugely expansive and positive vision of theology. Um, almost everything you find in native theology, you can really find in Irenaeus. But it's because he's so early that working on him over many, many years um, just dragged me earlier into the church. So uh, it was mentioned that I've been doing a work on, I did a work on the Way to Nicaea, the Nicene Faith. I finally managed to get up to about the 5th, 6th century with a book on Diodor and Theodore. My wife keeps on urging me to get up to date. <laughs> but, you know, seeing as, she, seeing as she does a gothic novel, it's all relative. You know? um, but having got to the 6th century, I found myself immediately being drawn back to the 2nd century. Another work on Irenaeus, finishing some work on Origen, and going back and writing a book on the Gospel of John. So the, the earliest period is so important because it's in the earliest period that Christian theology learns its language. Yeah, when you're talking about Trinity, Incarnation, Christology, and all the things, you're talking with vocabulary which has been set in a particular context. As Rowan Williams points out in one of his uh, essays, he says, the Christian theology is perennially tempted to be seduced by bypassing the question of how it learnt its own language. Yeah? We, we take the formula that have been developed over the centuries. We don't think about what actually those formulas are a response to, the context in which they're being developed, and we apply it in any other context without thinking about it. Okay. So I've been doing it for 20, 20 years or so. The more I study the early church, the more difficult it gets. It really gets more and more difficult. Because every time you go back to these early figures, you realize they're thinking in ways which are not like the ways we think today. Yeah? And it's a real discipline of trying to think in the way they think, break down our categories and try just to see the world, the way they're reading scripture in the way that they're doing it. You may disagree with them after, you know, when you've done it, but at least try and understand them in their own terms. So it's a really ascetic discipline of doing that. Um, but it's a really important one. So much of modern scriptural scholarship is devoted to the question of the reader. Yeah? The hypothetical reader, the construct of the reader by literary crit critical theory, the, the implied reader by any text. Well, if you're studying the first, second, third century, you're reading actual readers of scripture in the first generation. Yeah? Especially with 
Irenaeus, Polycarp, going back to John. Okay. So as I was doing all of that. Um, after I did my doctoral work, I came to St. Vladimir's Seminary. They've got a rule, I'm dean now, I suppose I have to take responsibility for it. They've got a rule that anybody who teaches there has to have a degree from an Orthodox academy, Orthodox seminary. I didn't, so I had to do a THM. And I decided what I'd do would be to translate Irenaeus' work, the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. And that was kind of one level further immersed into all of this. He calls this work the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. It's a short work. Uh, some of you, I guess, have read it. Maybe uh, 40, 50 pages. It's really, really not long. Um, and he goes through the whole summary of the apostolic preaching, but he never quotes the apostles, never quotes the writings of the New Testament. All he gives is drawn from the language of the scriptures, from Isaiah, from Zechariah, from Genesis, from, all the, from the Psalms, all of that. And he presents the apostolic preaching just through that language. And so that, that, why he would do that was a real interest to me, real concern for me, and pushed me in the direction I've been going. And then just one other element which I want to add to all of this, and then hopefully bring it all together, is Irenaeus' language about the human being. He's got one of some of the most beautiful language about the human being. He says in one part, he says, the glory of God is a living human being. Yeah? You know, we often think that the duty of a human being is to glorify God. Well, no, he says, the glory of God is a living human being. Now, of course, the question is, what does he mean by a living human being? Okay? And maybe we'll get into that as we look at the Gospel of John. To take us from Irenaeus back to the Gospels, let me just read a passage from St. Ignatius of Antioch, just to show you how differently they might be thinking. This is St. Ignatius of Antioch. He's taken from Antioch to Rome to be martyred in Rome in the early years of the second century. He meets various Christians on the way, he writes letters to their communities, and he sends a letter to Rome in anticipation of his coming there. In that letter to the Roman Christians, he says basically, whatever you do, don't stop me being martyred. Yeah? Don't try and intervene, don't try and bribe the judges to get me out of this. Yeah? And at one point he says, um, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, brethren. Allow me. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Allow me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a human being. Allow me to follow the example of the passion of my God. Okay? So he's saying, hinder me not from living by trying to keep me alive in this world. Yeah? Birth pangs are upon me. I'm not yet born. Allow me to go and follow the passion of my Lord. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a human being. He's not yet human. Okay? And this is just lines just jotted down from his pen as he's being taken under guard from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. He's not yet born, not yet alive, not yet human. What on earth is he talking about? Okay. In order to understand that, Irenaeus as well, I think we need to go back to the Gospel of John. This is where we're going to now get into theological reading of the Gospels. By Patristic scholars, Steve did his work in, in uh, Cyril of Alexandria and has led back into the interpretation of scripture, the figure of Christ and so on. I'm from an earlier period, second century, and I'm on the cusp of where all of these things are coming together. Um, so in order to understand where 
Irenaeus, Ignatius are coming from. Let's go back to the Gospels, because I think we'll find the answer when we turn to the Gospel of John. And what I want to show to you is a way of reading the Gospels, which raises questions for us um, and challenges for us, but maybe is stimulating at the same time. Okay, Irenaeus claims legacy to the heritage of John. He says he's a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John himself. Ignatius is coming from the same kind of areas that John was active in, his influence was pervasive. So, Gospel of John. But in order to understand the Gospel of John, let's just turn back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke for a moment, the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, the Synoptic Gospels. And then by contrast, we can understand the Gospel of John. And then from that, we can get into the question of how Gospel, Scripture, Christ, all relate together and what it is to be human. So, the Synoptic Gospels. Probably the most striking thing about the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is how ignorant the disciples are. You know, if you never thought about it, you read, you read through the, the, the accounts, and the disciples just continuously fail to get it. Yeah? They are with Christ. They met his mother. They heard what she had to say. They, they, they talk with him. They see interactions. They see him doing miracles. They hear him giving a, a sermon on the mount. All these different things. Do they understand who he is? Do they? No. There's one occasion, just one occasion, before the Passion, when one of the disciples makes a confession of faith about who Christ is. On the road to Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, in parallel, where, where, Paul went, uh, sorry, where Peter, when pushed, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay? Now, we all know that statement, but it's really important to pay attention to the context in which it's set. Because it's immediately followed by Christ saying, you did not know this by flesh and blood, but by an apocalypse of the Father. Yeah? In other words, you did not know it by seeing me, five foot tall, six foot tall, short hair, long hair, crooked nose, whatever it might be, seeing what I'm doing, hearing what I'm saying, physical perception. You did not know it by this, okay? but by revelation from the Father. And then Peter, having made the confession, Christ says, you're the rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose, the apes of hell will never prevail. And by the way, Peter, I've got to go to Jerusalem to suffer. Yeah? And what does Peter say? No, never going to happen to you. And what does Christ say at that point? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah? The only one who's called Satan by the Son of God is the apostle, is a disciple who's just made a confession of faith about who Christ is. The only disciple to do that. Yeah? The one that Christ says is a rock, I'll build my church on it. He's now Satan. And it's not, don't listen to Satan, Satan's tempting you, whatever else. It's, it directly calls him Satan. Yeah? A point is being made in all of this. And that point is, you cannot separate Christ from the cross. That's what, that's what Peter was trying to do. No, you won't go to Jerusalem to suffer. That's why he's called Satan. Satan then tries to separate Christ from the cross. Okay? So the exception then proves the rule. The one time when one of the disciples makes a confession of faith about who Christ is, he doesn't understand it. He gets called Satan. Okay? When he gets to the, the passion scene, um, Christ is on the cross. Peter runs in fear, denies him. I do not know the man. Yeah? When it comes to the empty tomb, the empty tomb, the disciples don't believe it. They don't understand it. They, they, they turn up, the women turn up and say, what's happened here? Has someone stolen the body? Yeah, it takes an angel to explain to them, don't you remember what he said? He would rise from the dead, now go tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee, and so on. The women go back and tell the disciples, the disciples say, you've got up too early this morning. You don't know what you're talking about. They go and try and see, 
they don't get it either. Okay? Then we get to uh, the various resurrectional accounts, and every resurrectional account has got some kind of turning point by which the disciples come to recognize him. Steve mentioned Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, really important one. Okay? Just think about it. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, the, a few days later, uh, the risen Christ turns up, and what do they say to him? What do they say to him? They say, who are you? Yeah? The risen Christ turns up no more than a week later, and they say, who are you? Are you a stranger here? Haven't you heard what's been going on? Haven't you heard about this Jesus who we thought was going to save us, but he went and got himself killed, and we went to the tomb, and we found it empty? We've got no idea what's going on. Okay? I'm playing it up for dramatic effect. I hope you realize that. Okay. <coughs> um, but, but, but I want to make this point. They did not recognize the risen Lord. Okay? Not only did they not understand him when they were with him, they didn't understand him on the cross, they didn't understand the empty tomb, they didn't understand the appearance of the risen Jesus. Okay? Now, all of that's really important because of what happens next. What happens next, as Steve pointed out, is that Christ opens the scripture to show how Moses and all the prophets spoke about how the Son of Man had to suffer to enter into his glory. Okay? They persuade him to stay the night, they know him in the breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened, and then as soon as they recognize him, he's gone, he disappears from sight. Okay? So we're left waiting for him, yeah? looking forward to his coming. Now the reason I've gone through all of that is because the way that we know who Christ is, is as the crucified and risen one, known through the opening of the scripture and the breaking of the bread. Yeah? And the reason that's so important is because that's what we still do today. Yeah, we still open the scripture, we still encounter in the scripture. We are not at a disadvantage in this by being 2,000 years later. The disciples had the advantage of being there 2,000 years ago, but did they benefit from it? Did they get it from being there? I always ask my students, you know, if you'd been in Jerusalem in the year 25 AD, having a cup of coffee in Starbucks as Jesus walked by, would you have said, oh, there goes the word of God incarnate, the son of God? <laughs> no, yeah, I'm really making a point here. No, you would not. Sometimes a student puts a hand up and says, yes, I would. And then it's very easy to say, well, you must be demonically possessed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because only the demonically possessed, the outside, the unclean, and so on, only they know who he is, yeah? Not the disciples. Okay? So one way of knowing who he is is by becoming demonically possessed, but I wouldn't recommend that. Okay? The point is to know Christ as the disciples know him, and that's not by being there 2,000 years ago. It's by having the scriptures opened to know him in the breaking of the bread to then search after him. Okay, so the first point then, he's known by the scriptures, through the opening of the scriptures. Now this has got some really serious implications for how we read scripture. Okay? This opening of the scripture and the breaking of the bread, it's interesting, those are the two things that the Apostle Paul specifies before the Gospels are written, 20, 30 years before the Gospels are written, these are the two things that the Apostle Paul specifies that he has received and hands down. In Corinthians 15, 
I delivered to you, the word there is peredoke, traditio, I handed down to you what I received, that Christ died in accordance with scripture, he was raised in accordance with scripture. So important, he repeats it twice in one short sentence. Died in accordance with scripture, raised in accordance with scripture, where the scriptures don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they mean <coughs> what we now call the Old Testament. Okay? Um, and then Corinthians 11. In the, night in, which, uh, in the night in which he was given up, he took bread, do this in remembrance of me. Yeah? The two things, for which he uses that technical formula, I delivered to you what I received. I traditioned to you what I received. Okay? Um, now with this idea of the scriptures being opened, you have that in all sorts of ways in the New Testament. Another example would be the Apostle Paul. Yeah? You know, we spend all our time today trying to think how a first century Jew would have read scripture. Well, Paul was a first century Jew reading scripture. Yeah? Trained in all the rabbinical schools, knew it in the original language, inside out, back to front, upside down, and all the rest of it. But did reading scripture lead him to Christ? No, it didn't. He thought, did, did reading scripture, did he think he was fallen, needing salvation? No, he says, I'm righteous with respect to the law. I'm blameless. You Christians have got it so wrong, I'm going to persecute you. Yeah? He then encounters Christ, and his eyes are opened. And he describes it as a veil has now been lifted off the scriptures. The veil lay over the scriptures, but when you turn to Christ, the veil is lifted. It's the same image as the book being opened. Yeah? The veil is lifted. The slain lamb opening the book. All these different ways. So no, it's an apocalyptic reading of scripture. Okay. Now in this, there are four things which characterize a text as scripture in antiquity. First of all, it's cryptic. It has to be opened. The book has to be opened. The veil has to be lifted. Everyone was reading it before, but nobody was getting this point. The veil had to be lifted. It's cryptic. If it were straightforwardly what it says, well, what's the big deal? Yeah? It's cryptic. It has to be opened up. The second point is that it's contemporary. These things are not written about the past. They are written about now. Uh, Steve quoted a passage of uh, the words of Christ in the Gospel of John. If you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote of me. Not wrote of things that happened 10,000 years ago and I'm now the next stage in the master narrative. He wrote of me. Okay? The third point then is that they're all harmonious. They're found, all the scriptures speak about the one who opens the book. Yeah, Moses and all the prophets wrote about how the Son of Man had to die to enter into his glory. Okay? So cryptic, harmonious, contemporary. Uh, was that contemporary? Paul also says, you know, these things are not written for their benefit, but they're written for our benefit upon whom the end of the world has come, for us. Yeah? And then the fourth point, and this is the interesting one, because it actually comes out of the other three, but we don't tend to think that way. The fourth point is that they're inspired. Okay, now, when we talk about inspiration today in our modern framework, we tend to think of what was happening as an episode in history. When Isaiah was in the temple many centuries before Christ, he was inspired, and then he, got, he, wrote, he wrote his oracles. Yeah? And we might get into the question of, did he understand what he was writing? Did he know what he was writing about? Was it autopilot? Well, all the kind of questions we get into with that. Well, I don't know about you, but I've got no idea what was in Isaiah's mind when he was writing. But I do know for a fact that nobody was reading Isaiah 
as speaking about a crucified Messiah born of a virgin until after the event. There's no doubt about that, yeah? Which means you can't separate the inspiration of Scripture from the opening of the book by Christ. Yeah? And likewise, you can't separate it from the inspired reading of Scripture. Okay? So the act of inspiration is an act which, is, which brings together the writer and the reader, but both turn upon Christ who opens the books to the reader to show how the writer spoke about him. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, let, let it sink in. <coughs> okay, um, so that's with regard to the synoptics. If we just follow the pattern of the synoptics, we usually call the messianic secret and so on, it's making a point that the disciples only know who Christ is after the event, and then they do so by going back to the scriptures. Yeah? The scriptures. I, I, prefer not to use the term Old Testament, but that's what I'm talking about. You know, if, if the apostle calls them scripture, if the evangelist calls them the scriptures, well, it's fine by me. Okay? Um, the primary material for understanding Christ, the primary material historically, as well as theologically, the primary material for understanding Christ is not the New Testament, but the scriptures, read through the light of the Passion through the light of the cross. Okay? That's why Irenaeus could write a, a demonstration of the apostolic preaching without quoting the apostles at all. Because apostolic preaching is Christ in accordance with the scriptures. Christ proclaimed using the scriptures. What we have in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke is all imagery drawn from the scriptures to proclaim who Christ is. Yeah? Now, this is where we come to the Gospel of John. Because in a very, very real sense, the Gospel of John starts where the other Gospels finish. And by that, I don't just mean you know, turning the page, here's Matthew, here's Mark, here's Luke, oh, here's John. No, I don't, I don't mean that. What I mean is, the Gospel of John takes a theological reflection to a higher level. In the synoptics, the disciples don't know who he is all the way through, and then at the end, the scriptures are opened, and they finally get it. Okay? Other ways in which they get it, but we'll just stay with that one for now. In the Gospel of John, we start with that. Yeah? You've already, after the prologue, we could talk about the prologue as well if we want to, but after the prologue, when the narrative starts, you've got John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, it's not, he's not saying that because a, a fluffy white animal is walking towards him with four legs. He's saying that because he's already thinking about Exodus and Isaiah and all the other passages one might think about with regard to the Lamb of God. You then got Philip telling Nathaniel, at the beginning of the gospel, we found the one of whom Moses speaks. Moses and the prophets speak. Already at the beginning of the gospel. And then Christ says to them, you think that's great? Stay around and you'll see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. In other words, your interpretation of Christ through Moses and the prophets is still too low. You've got to take it one step up. Okay? In the Gospel of John, Christ is always depicted as the one in control all the way through. He's the exalted Lord from the beginning. He's always saying things like, I'm from above, you are from below. Yeah? Um, now is not the time. When I'm ready, I will lay down my life. You know, he's the one in control. He's, he's, nothing happens without him in the Gospel of John. 
In the Gospel of John, when he comes to Gethsemane, we see a very different Christ. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Christ is sweating tears of blood, according to the traditional text, in agony. Father, it is possible, let this cup pass, please. Nevertheless, he reconciles himself, not what I will, but you will. It's in agony with regard to this. In the Gospel of John, he begins in Gethsemane by saying, now my soul is troubled. But then for three chapters, we've got this really high, elevated, priestly prayer where he's reflecting to the Father about the glory he had with the Father from all eternity and preserved them in my name and I've kept them in one that they may be one in us. And Really high theology. Okay? And in fact, in the Gospel of John, he kind of, the way he's depicted is in fact as countering what we've got in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in the Gospel of John, Christ actually says, what? Should I say, let this cup pass from me? As he says, as he says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then he says, no, for this reason I've come into the world. Yeah? So the theological reflection has taken a higher level in all of this. So the, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples don't know until the end. Then the books are open and the gospels are written, but they preserve their, their ignorance in all of that. In John, the gospels, uh, the, the scriptures are open from the beginning and we can see from the beginning that he's the one who's come to lay down his life as a suffering servant in Isaiah, all the way from the beginning. Yeah? Um, in the gospel of John, it's when he's lifted up upon the cross that he ascends in glory. You know, Acts doesn't, is not a sequel to John. Acts is a sequel to Luke. In John, he ascends in glory upon the cross. When I'm lifted up, then you will know that I am. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And then the Gospel of John, of course, he's lifted up upon the cross on a different day. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the last meal together, sacrifice of the lambs, the, the, the Passover meal, and the following day he's crucified. In the Gospel of John, he's crucified when the lamb is slain in the temple. Yeah, and it's not just a matter of you know, mistaken chronology and we've got to decide which one it is and then we know the truth. The point is that from, in the Gospel of John, from the beginning he's been depicted as the lamb of God. Yeah, the opening words, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Well, if this is the Lamb of God, when is he going to die apart from when the lambs are slain in the temple? Okay. In the Gospel of John, he says completely different words on the cross. He doesn't say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I thirst that he might be given vinegar, that scripture might be fulfilled. He says words to his mother and beloved disciple, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Then he says, it's finished. And this is where we, we come back to. It's finished. What is finished? What is finished? Now, I would argue, given what we've just seen in Ignatius, and we can multiply that um, throughout the early centuries, <coughs> that John is deliberately echoing Genesis. Okay, to think about it. They both start in the beginning. Enarchy, enarchy. There's a literary parallel going on between John and Genesis, and that's really well known. Okay? But with, this in, with what we've seen in mind, when we go back to the beginning of Genesis, we can actually see something much more interesting going on. And that is, in Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis, think about how it starts. It begins with God speaking everything into existence. Let it be, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let the waters be gathered, let there be, let there be, let there be, it is, it's good, it's done, end of the day. 
Yeah? He simply speaks everything into existence by a divine fiat. And then having spoken everything into existence, <coughs> he then does something completely different, introduced by a different form of verb. He says, let us make a human being. Yeah? It's subjunctive, it's not imperative, it's subjunctive. It says, let us make a human being. It's his project. Yeah, everything else is just let it be, let it be. It's a backdrop. His project is to make a human being. Okay? And I would suggest that when we get to the Gospel of John, in this theological reading of, of the Gospels in this way, based on what I found in the first couple of centuries, that what, when Christ says it is finished on the cross, he is specifically referring to let us make a human being. And the, the evidence for that is shown on the one hand with um, Pilate. Because what does Pilate say only in the Gospel of John, not in the other Gospels, what does Pilate say before Christ goes to, the to, the, to his passion, because before he's crucified? Pilate says, behold the human being. Yeah? So you've got scripture starting off, speaking everything into existence, and then God starting about his work, let us make a human being. And then at the end, here it is, behold the human being. Yeah? The human being then, in the way that Ignatius wants to become human by following the passion of his Lord. He's not yet born, he's not yet living, he's not yet human. He will be born into life as a human being by martyrdom in Christ, by taking up the cross and following Christ. Okay? So if that's the way of reading it, and that's the way I've, I've, it's taken me years to get my head around what Irenaeus is doing and, and how it all holds together, but if that's what's going on, something far more interesting is going on in these early centuries, in the way they are reading scripture, in the way they relate um, gospel and scripture together. So to reiterate a point that um, Steve made, it is not one long, is not read as one long historical narrative of which we have the Old Testament and then the next step, the New Testament. We are at a huge disadvantage because we've become so accustomed to the book called the Bible, printed in that way. Well, nobody had it that way in the early centuries, just straightforwardly. Yeah? What we have is scripture, which is opened by the passion, by Christ in, in and through the passion, to show how it speaks about him from beginning to end. Okay? From let us make a human being to behold a human being. Okay? Scripture speaking about him. <coughs> um, what we have as the writings of the Gospels is not the next step. It is a summary of Scripture. It's a recapitulation, to use Irenaeus' term. It's a recap of all of this. This is written at such length, in such prolixity, under such obscurity that nobody got it. But now with a book being opened through the passion of Christ, it can be seen clearly. Yeah, it can be seen clearly, and you can have what Isaiah, Paul refers to Isaiah, um, the, the concise word, the short abridged word, which sums up the whole thing. So the Gospels are a recapitulation of Scripture. Okay. Another aspect which comes out of this is, again, Steve referred to this kind of idea of a, of a meta-narrative, creation, fall, mighty works of God, incarnation, end times. If we think about it like that, 
it actually makes Christ into plan B, to put it rather crudely. You know, creation, everything's good, plan A, then the fall, and then it took all of this time to prepare for the, for the rectification of all of this through Christ's work, making Christ plan B. Yeah? It's not how scripture was being read in the early church. It's not how scripture is being read by those who knew the disciples and apostles and so on. Um, the whole of the work of God culminates in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Here we see what it is to be God. And we see what it is to be God in the way that Christ dies as a human being, laying down his life for his neighbors, for the world, for the human being, for the human race. Okay? Uh, this is what it is to be divine. This is what it is to be human. <clears throat> Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. Adam is only ever a sketch of this. Paul describes Adam, uh, uh, Paul says Adam as being a type of the one to come, a preliminary model. Okay? Uh, Adam is called to this, but he, like all of us in the beginning, have not reached that. We, we've, we've, we, we've never attained, only in Christ can we, attain, uh, can, can we live in that divine way. So Christ is uh, the fulfillment of that of which Adam is a type and shows us what the reality is and provides us a way of entering into that reality by following him through our own martyrdom. Okay. Now, one of the greatest, and this will be my final point, I'm already five minutes over, one, one of my um, greatest concerns, uh, one of my greatest concerns is the question of the coherence of theology as theology. I mentioned Vern Williams' comment that, th that theology always tends to forget how it learned to speak its own language. What we've tended to do is to take what we consider to be the theological elements out of the exegetical framework in which they were articulated and then put them into another kind of exegetical framework. And we've never seriously addressed the question of what happens when we do that. We take the doctrine of the Trinity, creation, fall, incarnation, all of which are worked out within the kind of framework that Steve and I have just been talking about, but for whatever reason they become independent items of a systematic theology which is then combined with a different way of reading scripture than, than we've just been looking at. What happens when, when we do that? That's a question we really need to think about. Um, and then the other question, which is, again, an equally huge question today, is what is it to become a human being? Maybe there's actually more to being human than meets the eye. Okay, thank you.